0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in here to AOA, certainly appreciate it. We've got a lot coming on today's program. We're going to talk about the soybean market here in some detail in just a few moments with Mike Mike rather of Global Commodity Analytics and Consulting. That rally that has been going on this week looks today like it might be taking a bit of a breather. We'll get Mike's perspective on where things could go from here and then in segment two we're going to continue our look at the markets both domestically and globally with tanner emke tanner serves as the lead economist for dairy and specialty crops at Cobank, the bank for cooperatives. And he has been compiling his end of the year research on just how the dairy industry could be impacted going forward. And then in segment three, we're going to take a look at carbon programs. Folks, we've talked a lot about them on this program. It seems they are springing up everywhere. More carbon programs, carbon markets. Well, Ag Sustainability Consultant, Ben Palin, recently did a survey of 50 different farmers taking a look at how they're using these programs and whether or not they're accomplishing their goals. And he thinks it might be time for a reality check, perhaps a reset on expectations. And we'll get Ben Palin's perspectives in segment three before at the end of the show, we will talk a little bit more about the news events that are moving agriculture. And well, one of the stories that's moving agriculture is the money flow around the world we continue to see ongoing shifts in how that money moves from equities into commodities into bonds and 2022 has certainly been volatile we have seen both the equity market and the bond market fall simultaneously typically you don't see things it changes the way investors are moving their money around the world and they're looking for indications as to how the economy is going to perform now Since so much of economic strength in 2023, could be determined by actions of the Federal Reserve. That's what Wall Street's keeping an eye on. And sometimes that leads to counterintuitive conclusions in the markets. For example, today, we saw unemployment benefits. Initial claims for unemployment benefits rise, 9,000 positions. Well, ordinarily, that shows that the economy is slowing down. Typically, that would be bearish for the equity markets. But because this is 2022, those initial claims were higher, which market watchers believe shows the labor economy is weakening, which might help the Federal Reserve lower interest rates, or at least slow down the the pace of rate hikes. And that's bullish for stocks. So even though we had bad fundamental economic news this morning, unemployment benefits rising, we're actually seeing the equity markets rise on that news because it could change the way interest rates are, are are calculated going forward it's an interesting time in the markets that's on the equity side we're also seeing interesting things take place here in the commodity side and joining us now for a breakdown specifically a look at what's coming in the soybean markets is mike zuzalo mike serves as uh, the founder of global commodity analytics and consulting and mike thanks for joining us today
2: nice to be with you mike happy new year to you hope you had a great christmas
0: Well, same to you, sir. New Year is just around the corner. And in the meantime, we've got soybeans trying to meet that new year with a bullish attitude. But it looks like to this week's rally, Mike, is starting to slow down. How do you interpret the trades action in soybeans today?
2: Yeah, pretty interesting dynamic right now in the soy complex through the product markets. And what I've noticed here the last four or five weeks, remembering that Argentina is the number one soy meal exporter in the world pretty much year in and year out, Mike. Um, the meal market, I think, has been the best representative of the Argentine drought. And at this stage of the game, Argentina's soybean plantings are just barely crossing the 60% threshold. They're normally close to 80% planted. So the next four to six weeks could really change the crop production numbers dramatically, both in terms of corn, but especially in soybeans. Uh, So I think the meal market is the best representative and the canary in the coal mine for the Argentine weather drought. The bull market started in the meal market uh, with the fresh monthly lows first put in and then the beans caught after that. Bean oil, however, has been a better representative representative of the of the Chinese situation. And when the zero COVID policies were overturned and, and we had a couple pieces of economic data in between Christmas and the startup of this week, we saw Malaysian palm oil, for instance, jump 7% when we came back from the Christmas holiday and traded this week. So I think that's where you want to really keep an eye on the product markets. If we can get both China to run hard, Um, In terms of the bean oil going up and we can see the crude oil market find some support and we continue with an Argentine drought and the upside potential in the beans may still be at hand at this point mike i'm glad you brought up meal
0: out of argentina because i'm wondering about their production forecast as we get deeper into 2023 of course earlier this year they had their fantastic sale of whole soybeans using their soy dollar program now they've got a crop that as you mentioned they're struggling to get into the fields of course when that crop comes out next spring it ordinarily would move into processing but if they don't have that crop and they've exported most of their whole beans that they had on hand can argentinian meal production reach its historic levels in 23
2: no i don't think it can mike i mean i i think the production number is completely wide open at this point because of their planning progress being so far behind i can tell you where i'm at right now usda and argentina soybeans is at 49.5 million tons i see a top end of 47 at this point because of the planning delays in the drought in key areas like Entre Rios and the Buenos Aires provinces. Uh, so that'd be about a 5% drop just right here, right now. And when it comes to going forward, I think in Argentina's case, because of the planting pace and the weather that already has been set up over the last 60 days, the, the drought, I should say, in Argentina in some of the key provinces that are representative of about 50 to 60% of the corn, produ- corn and bean production each and every year is almost as bad as what we're dealing with in the hard red wheat belt here in the United States, uh, Kansas, uh, Northern Oklahoma, and Nebraska, just to give the listener an idea of how bad it is. And so a 5% drop in bean production is not hard to envision at this point for me. It could be one to 2% per week if we don't change the weather pattern relatively soon.
0: Mike, for those end users domestically who are needing secure meal supplies ahead of the spring and into summer 23, we've seen a $60 rally here in the past month. How do
2: you manage those purchases heading into the new year? Yeah, great question. I think you have to realize at this point that we have a premium in the futures market. I talked to a real good client in South Central Illinois today. And he was 35 over for spot beans at this point. Here in Atchison, Northeast Kansas, we're running 35 to 45 over in spot beans. I think that if you need to buy beans, you're probably going to need to come in and look at buying the paper product, Mike. In other words, coming in and buying the futures market, which is discounted to the the cash market at this point and so i think some hedge protection would be warranted in this next 30 days if we don't see a weather pattern change the other thing i would say to look at if you're a end user is the july NOVE bean spread we continue to see the july beans keep a dollar plus premium against the new crop november that's a very you know quote unquote bullish attitude by the trade and as long as we keep that kind of a spread and inversion with the July holding a premium then the weather market I think is still very valid and still very much at the top of the traders minds. Lots to watch as this calendar flips into 2023. Mike
0: Zuzalo of Global Commodity Analytics and Consulting thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you Mike.
0: And folks stay here we'll talk dairy with Tanner Emke of Cobank when AOA returns. Hi this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays, or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more.
3: The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 B.C. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Egg Network.
0: This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
4: Keeping farmers and ranchers informed.
0: AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Certainly appreciate you joining us today. In segment one there, we heard from Mike Zuzulo on the markets. Looking ahead to 2023, there is a lot on the minds of market watchers, not just in the grain markets and, of course, not just in the livestock markets. We're also seeing thoughts about the dairy market, looking ahead. And that's going to be our focus in this next segment. We're joined now by Tanner Amke, serves as the lead economist for dairy and specialty crops over at Kobec. And they have recently compiled their end of the year report. And Tanner had the opportunity to reflect on the dairy industry. And Tanner, what a year it has been. $25 milk at one point this past year, but of course, $6 diesel and labor costs skyrocketing. The dairy industry has been on a balancing act this past year, haven't they?
5: it's been an interesting year for sure mike and i think it's one for the record books uh, on all those things that you mentioned in terms of milk price in terms of production costs and uh, we're bracing for 2023 where uh, a lot of those themes are going to continue but it's going to be one of those stories where uh, the strong dollar we fear is going to be adding some more headwinds to our exports we got a u.s consumer unfortunately that's very stressed financially And those production costs, unfortunately, are going to keep going up.
0: They are. Tanner, let's talk about how things sit in the US for dairy producers right now. We had those record high prices earlier in the year. They've come down since then. What have you seen overall for milk production in this country?
5: Well, we continue to see a gradual recovery in uh, total milk uh, produced. Uh, A lot of that is owed, really, to productivity and the innovation and hard work of US uh, dairy farmers, really. Uh, that's been uh, a lot of the uh, recovery in uh, total milk production, but we are seeing some gradual incremental increases in uh, the total uh, herd size in the U.S. And, again, it really comes down to those production costs we were talking about earlier, Mike. You, you mentioned uh, diesel prices being very high, labor costs being very high, the cost of steel and copper and cements and lumber to build new barns. So all of those things have really restrained Uh, the growth uh, of the U.S. herd. Now, that being said, we are on a gradual recovery path, and it's not just the United States. We need to point out that Europe as well uh, is seeing uh, a gradual recovery in milk supplies as well. So given that that we're seeing uh, some recovery over in Europe, we're seeing some recovery in milk production in the U.S., that's really what's pulling down uh, milk prices and at the same time, we have that very strong dollar that I mentioned earlier, Mike, that is a very strong headwind. So far, we've been able to continue this uh, very uh, strong export pace that has just been so resilient, really success story for uh, U.S. dairy farming. Um, but unfortunately, though, uh, with milk prices down following the recovery in production in the U.S. and over in Europe, Uh, and the strong dollar and uh, the resilience of production costs we're bracing for what we're going to see in 2023 is probably going to be a theme of margin compression
0: you mentioned we were were watching the herd change and I'm curious as the the smaller producers are, are forced out as they can't compete with the economies of scale are we still seeing those cows in the nationwide herd are they just moving to a larger dairy
5: I'd say uh, the change here is twofold. Yes, uh, we're seeing uh, larger da- dairies get larger, uh, but also uh, it's that migration of the U.S. dairy herd to those inland states. We're talking about places like Texas and South Dakota and uh, eastern uh, western Kansas and eastern Colorado, uh, those places that have cheaper feed costs, really, and uh, lower labor costs. And so you're seeing a recovery of the herd in those areas, whereas in other parts of the country where costs have really been very resilient uh we're seeing a harder time for producers to respond to those uh high milk prices that we saw and so there is a transition here from uh Uh, from smaller dairies over to bigger dairies, and further into those uh, lower-cost inland states.
0: Tanner, before we move to the exports and the global dairy picture, can you talk a little bit about the U.S. demand picture? You mentioned consumers are struggling, there's inflation in play. What's your expectation for demand this next year?
5: We've already seen a trend this year, Mike, where consumers are pushing back on those uh, higher-priced products. Uh, For instance, they're trading down from brands to uh, store labels. They're trading down uh, from premium products and commodity products. So that would include something like trading down from, say, Smokes Gouda uh, cheese down to uh, a block of cheddar cheese. Uh, So things like that where the consumer is trying to uh, reduce their uh, grocery bill. They may start uh, shopping at places like Walmart or uh, Costco uh, rather than shopping at Whole Foods, for instance. So they're they're making all kinds of innovative measures there to reduce the grocery bill without having to actually reduce total consumption of dairy products. And I think that is key. Food is something that not too many people can go without, right? And I think that the U.S. consumer is trying to do here is maintain their level of consumption without having to actually... uh, uh, without having to trade down too much on total amount of consumed. So I think it's a story here where the U.S. consumer wants to maintain that level of dairy con- consumption, with, uh, but at a lower cost.
0: That makes sense. I know we've spoken with Professor Glenn Tonser from Kansas State on this program about meat demand going forward, and we're seeing the same thing play out there. Consumers really want that meat. They want that beef, but maybe rather than a ribeye, they're going to ground beef. Makes sense. They do the same thing in the dairy side. Tanner, I know that the U.S. market is huge for dairy producers, but those exports have been adding more and more value to the bottom line over recent years. And you mentioned that strong dollar creating a headwind into this next year. Where do you see exports going given the balancing act that's ahead?
5: Well, USDA has uh, already come out with their forecast for 2023, and they're anticipating Uh, dairy exports to come back a little bit off of uh, this year's record pace, and that is to be expected with a slowing global economy, a uh, very strong dollar that we anticipate is going to continue to strengthen. uh, Given that uh, the Federal Reserve is going to continue tightening the monetary supply, uh, that is going to lift the value of the dollar. And then at the same time, we've got some global concerns uh, economically with Europe and their energy crisis with uh, China and their COVID situation as it is. And so with weakening uh, economies there, uh, that's gonna be hard to export into those markets when their economies uh, are weakening and their currencies are weakening versus the dollar. So there are are indeed some very strong headwinds there uh, into some very important markets, especially China uh, going forward. Now, that being said, we always have to go back to the basic supply-demand situation, Mike, right, before we start getting too bearish on exports. We have a situation over in uh, New Zealand and uh, Australia where dairy producers are struggling with inclement weather, but mainly the, ma- uh, the big problem there for those producers to grow their production and respond to record high milk prices is their sustainability laws that are requiring them to reduce cow numbers and thereby reducing milk supply. Therefore, we have an export opportunity here into those Asian markets when you see New Zealand stepping back uh, on their dairy production. So I, I would say it's a mixed bag or a mixed story, if you will, on the export front for dairy. We've got some very powerful headwinds in regards to our, very, our strong currency and the weakening economy over in China. But I think there is some, a positive story here with New Zealand stepping back uh, from their production capacity and thereby leaving the door open for the U.S. to perhaps gain market share into those important Asian markets.
0: It is exciting to watch that potential for market open up as Australia and New Zealand restrict their own dairy industry. And of course, Tanner, those, uh, those ideas in Australia and New Zealand really originated in Europe. We've seen the Netherlands announce they're going to be closing many livestock farms, 3,000 here in the near future. Does that open the potential for more U.S. dairy into Europe over the coming years?
3: There is that
5: potential. Uh, keep in mind, uh, Europe is a, is a very strong dairy ex, uh, producer, of course, uh, uh, and so uh, the Europeans are going to take care of their needs first. And I would say uh, where the opportunity is here is, again, on the export market. The Europeans are going to be stepping back uh, from the export market. Uh, there may be some opportunity for us to uh, increase our exports into europe but uh, i see the real opportunity here is in the export markets that uh, europe is going to be abandoning uh to satisfy their uh, sustainability uh initiatives
0: and that european export market tanner where does most of their dairy go
5: a lot of that dairy export out of a lot of the dairy exports out of Europe go into uh, the, the Middle Eastern market, uh, down to Africa, and of course there are major exporters uh, into China, and so we're going to see the Europeans step away from those uh, emerging markets, and that's going to be a, a benefit to, to the United States, I think, specifically when it comes to ingredients and powders. But I would say cheese is going to be a part of that too. Um, it's it's going to be that story where. You know, I think we could probably benefit on a whole number of different
0: products. All right. Some opportunities coming in the export market if we can overcome those dollar value headwinds. Folks, we've been talking with Tanner Key, lead economist for dairy and specialty crops at CoBank. And Tanner, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Stay here. When AOA returns, we're going to talk with Ben Palin and do a reality check on carbon programs. Stay here for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away, more AOA coming right up. Is your bathroom looking old and worn out? Want to update it but you don't know where to start? Then let BCI Bath and Shower show you how to turn that old bath into an aisle of beauty and functionality. Our residential bathroom solutions provide the best value on the market, and our customer service is second to none. Our cost-effective
6: BCI Bath & Shower Family of Products has what you need.
1: Remodeling our bathroom was a big decision for us.
6: They didn't make a mess out of our house at all. And at the end of the day, we had a beautiful new bathroom. And it was a great experience the whole way through.
0: We have the best monthly payment programs in the industry, with payments as low as $68 per month or no interest, no payments for 18 months. For a limited time, be one of the first 100 callers who schedule a free in-home consultation and receive $500 off. Call 800-721-9985 for a free, no-obligation price quote. That's 800-721-9985. Factory-trained and certified installers made in the USA and discounts for seniors and military. BCI Bath & Shower, the leader in affordable bathroom products. That's 800-721-9985.
4: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting as we look at the commodity trade here on this Thursday, mixed action of the grains with soybeans and bean oil a little bit higher. Corn just a little lower. Got some pressure in the wheat markets, though. Better moisture uh, in the forecast for the southern plains over the next few weeks. And stores moving across the plains Thursday expected to miss the southwestern plains, but bring water to the east and north. And that's something that we're keeping an eye on here. That's causing a little bit of this pressure in the wheat market. Paris milling wheat futures are lower for the second straight day as well. KC March uh, futures are in danger of ending the six day winning streak as well. And the bearish news continues to be Russia, also with its aggressive export stance still in effect. So, a lot of things we're watching closely here in the wheat market. That is something to keep an eye on. Now, we look at soybeans. Bean meal was the catalyst for the gains in soybeans here uh, yesterday and really all week long a little bit of an unwinding of that meal oil spread right now though uh, that we're seeing here today and bean oil moving a bit higher as crude oil is one percent lower soybeans though doing their best to hold above this 15 dollar mark it's been psychological resistance we finally got above it for the first time since mid-june finishing there uh finishing above it on wednesday Can we hold this long term? That remains to be seen. Still got that big Brazilian crop on tap that we really have to keep our eyes on. Livestock trade relatively mixed as we work through Thursday. Cattle futures a little higher. Hogs uh, mixed to lower in the front months. Not a whole lot of movement there, it appears, as we're just kind of rounding out the week and heading to the end of the year and getting ready to get back to some normalcy and normal trade action as we enter into next week and into 2023. Overall, though, markets fairly mixed to lower here today. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen.
3: Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute.
4: Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as
1: important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself,
3: the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org/caregiving. That's aarp.org/caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.
0: You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Certainly appreciate you joining us today. And in this next segment, we're going to talk about a big issue that has been impacting the ag industry for some time. Here over the past decade, we have seen interest growing around the world in using agricultural land to manage carbon, manage greenhouse gases, and effectively try to use ag land as a carbon sink. And over the past two to three years, we have seen this push for carbon sequestration and carbon markets Truly bloom. And in the media business, I bet I get a press release at least every other week about some new program designed to help farmers manage and sequester that carbon. Well, as that has ramped up, Ben Palin, who's the director of sustainable consultancy Ag Management Partners, recently did a survey, wanted to get his for how farmers are utilizing these programs and whether or not they're doing everything they're expected to be doing and we're going to talk with Ben now Ben Palin thank you so much for joining us today
6: well you're welcome glad to be on your show
0: before we jump into carbon markets and what your research uncovered with where that that uh, industry sits today fill us in a little bit Ag management partners Ben what is it that you guys do in the Ag industry
6: well, just as a brief background, I'm a fifth-generation uh, farmer and uh, had the good fortune to uh, work in uh, some places around the world, including, of course, here in the U.S. on a variety of ag uh, projects, ranging from uh, green fields developments for irrigation in in Africa to uh, to long-term uh, ag projects here in the U.S. And of course, as you mentioned, the sustainability and carbon um, items have come to the forefront here, especially in, in the last five years, and it's, it's quite a quite a bit of discussion in the ag sector about the, um, the uh, viability of, uh, of the carbon uh, situation for ag.
0: Yeah, there certainly has been. And so I understand that the sustainability aspect, Ben, is something Ag Management Partners is focused on. You're not a, a turn it black with the moldboard plow type operation. You, it seems as though you're broadly supportive here of the goals of some of the sustainability efforts of these carbon markets and sequestration programs. But you did some research. You spoke with 50 farmers recently. Can you fill us in? How, what was the geography of the farmers that you spoke with?
6: Okay. Certainly. It it covered uh, everywhere from permanent crops in California to a variety of row crops and small grains here in the central part of the U.S. as well as in the southern provinces in Canada, the western provinces, rather, of Canada, and in the parts of the Corn Belt and parts of the southeastern U.S. So we covered irrigated and dry land crops. So this is both permanent and annual crops and and just a a good cross-section as far as crops as, as well as the size of... The farms and the type of operations some of them had livestock components some were just purely grain farms
0: all right and so you 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 looked out and you found 50 farmers representing a fairly good cross-section of agricultural production here across the united states and Ben, you surveyed them on really how their practices have changed from 2012 to today you've got a 10-year window what did you find in your research
6: well certainly um, everyone was pretty much aware of the uh, carbon opportunities that are being promoted now and, and the sustainability aspect of certain practices. Um, but as far as acceptance of those of the, of the carbon markets, it's been a slow process and there's a lot of skepticism out there and it's partly because um, many of these farmers were, are pretty progressive and have been for a number of years with their practices and they felt that the opportunity to really add a lot of value by uh, uh, measuring the changes in carbon was was just not something that appealed to them um, be, partly because of um, the uh, the amount of information that had to be gathered in some cases, part of it was having to change a few practices and and part of it was just um, the the perception that there's some of the smoke and mirrors uh, uh, approach that occurs in this market so I was just recently with a farmer the other day uh, looking at some land uh, here in Colorado and uh he, uh, he's a very good operator, very progressive. He's a fourth-generation farmer. And uh, I asked him, I said, what are you doing as far as the carbon and the sustainability uh, aspects of your operation? And he expressed the same skepticism that I just mentioned, but he's doing things that are, are progressive, but not necessarily relating to changes in the carbon level in his soils. And, and for example, as an alternative approach to, uh, trying to improve the, the carbon situation. He's using some bio-stimulant products, and that allows him to reduce his nitrogen use. Of course, nitrogen is a big contributor to uh, carbon because it's, its its feedstock is essentially natural gas, and, and natural gas has a high uh, convergence factor when you look at the amount of methane in it and convert that to, to carbon dioxide. So anyway, he's replacing, in his case, about 15% of his traditional Fertilizer uh, usage for nitrogen and that translates into pretty significant uh, carbon savings, but he's not been able to to monetize that yet and i I believe that there are practices like that that can be monetized and probably could represent a better approach to this carbon question than trying to look at changes in soil organic carbon it's it's a first of all it's it's easier to say to document um, if you have a benchmark on nitrogen use of say one pound of nitrogen per bushel of corn it's produced. If you can document it, you're using eight-tenths of a pound of nitrogen, that's progress there. And Whereas with soil carbon, it's just much, much slower. I mean, it may take a decade to change uh, in a significant way the amount of uh, carbon that you're sequestering in the soil. So there's different alternatives that I think are emerging uh, that are, look promising to me and perhaps are a little more viable for both farmers as well as the folks who want to buy uh, carbon credits generated by agriculture.
0: And it, you, you mentioned monetization and the viability of these programs mm-hmm. for the farmer. It's got to make sense to do it on the farm if you're going to have that product to sell, yes. that carbon uh, credit product to sell. Yes. It, for those, those practices that are awarded payments under one or the other programs, did you have a chance mm-hmm. to talk with farmers about how those payments matched up to the work requirement? Did, did they feel like they were fairly compensated?
6: Uh, this, the short answer is no. Uh, just, just too, too much work involved, and, and the return on investment just, just wasn't there. Um, it, it's one of those things where um, the amount of of time required in relation to the to the return that you get, it didn't didn't uh, match up very well. They felt there were other practices they could use that might not necessarily pertain to carbon, but that are progressive practices that just offered a better return on investment, but that were also sustainable practices, too. That's, that's sort of the other side of the coin here on, on carbon.
0: It, it is. The sustainability and the payment, those two things have to come together to have this whole ecosystem sort of make sense. And I understand one of the questions in your survey was, what do you think about carbon markets? Talking to farmers, you asked them to rate it on a yeah. 1 to 10 scale. What is the trust level mm-hmm. of these programs today, Ben?
6: It's very low. It's, it's about 30%. Uh, and part of it is, is the paperwork. Some of the, some of the carbon contracts are, are difficult to understand. Uh, there's, there's uncertainty about how it's measured. And I know of one situation where a farmer signed up to, for the programs. They look promising. And now he's in a lawsuit with the company that's is supposed to be buying the carbon credits because they can't agree on how to measure the improvement in his soil carbon uh, practices. That's just one example. But I heard that. Sort of themed uh, from almost everyone that I spoke to with regard to the survey.
0: And Ben, I think that that tees up the key question as we come to this uh, sort mm-hmm. of fork in the road for these carbon programs. I, do mm-hmm. you feel, in your experience, that the industry is on the right track with the programs that are coming out, but they just need to work out the kinks and fine tune them? Or are we barking up the wrong tree altogether with the way these programs are set up today?
6: Well, I think it's a little bit of both, uh, to be honest with you. There, there's there's certainly legitimacy to, to use in agricultural practices as a way to, to help with the carbon footprint around the world, but it's it's hard to say there's a one-size-fits-all approach. As I said, for example, with, with looking at soil carbon uh, level changes, that's a that's a very slow process it's difficult to measure in some instances there are other ways that are emerging like the biostimulants uh, as I mentioned that offer some potential to 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 measure this and to get more acceptance from farmers too because they can see that that it's financially sustainable and it's environmentally sustainable plus of course it's helping on on the carbon aspect of things that all, all those things have to come together for farmers to really put a lot of faith in these kind of carbon programs, in, in my opinion. And I think the industry, that is the carbon monetization industry, needs to really open their eyes and ears to, to farmers and, and get their input so they can design these programs to get more acceptance down the road, too.
0: Ben in in your experience working with farmers working with farmland owners who are approaching these particular programs what are some changes you think might add some some trust factor back in for the growers you've worked with what would make them more on board with these programs as a in the short term
6: Well um some and this this is a controversial topic but it's it's a situation farmers has been doing say no-till or minimum-till practices for many years, and um, he's, he or she has already built up their their, their soil carbon levels significantly. They're not getting compensated for that now under the current framework. And if there was some way to do that in effect to, to give some reward for prior practices that have gotten them to this point they are today, that that would be well received. And I know that's a that's an uphill battle. There might be some role there for the USDA to help a bit with some incentives for farmers who have been doing those practices for a long time. But that would be one of the top things I would list there. And then again, maybe some more recognition of the impact on carbon by these bio products that are coming out now.
0: Yeah. Lots more research needs to be performed. Folks, if you want to read uh, Ben Palin's full article in the details of his survey, you can find it. Google smoke and mirrors not worth the extra cost. 50 U.S. farmers speak out on carbon markets. It was published earlier in December by Ag Funder News. We've been speaking with Ben Palin, director of Ag Management Partners. And Ben, thank you so much for joining us today.
6: You bet. Take care. Thank you.
0: And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we're going to take a look at some of the changes that might be coming in the oil industry over in Europe. Stay here for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up.
6: to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.
3: 180
1: over 111, and I had a stroke
5: Can't get my computer to work. Let me help you with that. How'd you do that? I just got techie with geeks on site.
1: Our geeks literally come on site. You and those in your office will never have to wait hours to have your technical questions answered. Get your free computer diagnosis today with your very own geek. Get started now and we'll help you instantly. Call 866-967-3879. 866-967-3879. That's 866-967-3879.
0: Welcome back, folks, to AOA. Hopefully you were able to tune in for that last segment with Ben Palin of Ag Management Partners talking about the push for carbon sequestration and carbon market programs and the mismatch between the push that's happening at the international and national level and the acceptance that's happening at the farm level. And the reason I feel like that's so important to discuss right now is because as we look out to 2023, a number of the trends we've seen develop over the past few years are still very much in place, including that focus on environment and sustainability and governance. Those ESG rules we've talked about so many times over the past year on this program the idea that investments should be driven by how well a company performs with regard to the environment with regard to being sustainable and how they govern themselves and these ESG rules are facing some substantial pushback we talked about that earlier this week the lawsuit amongst several state attorneys general as they push back on some of these companies looking to use ESG to make their investment decisions but there's still that major international push. ESG rules are continuing to be promulgated by governments around the world. The hotspot, unsurprisingly, I think for for listeners of this program, is is Europe. The EU is really taking the lead on ensuring companies are reporting their environmental goals honestly. And they are set to ramp up those requirements for reporting in the month of January. EU leaders in Brussels are expected to publish over 200 pages of guidance in that month alone to help market participants use all of these new green rules and and reporting strategies. We are still watching that SEC climate rule disclosure work its way through the regulatory process in the United States. And at the end of the day, this focus is going to be there for some time to come. However, there is always a question when we come to crunch time between what people say they want and what their goals are versus how they behave when it's on the line. and. The Russia-Ukraine war is unfortunately throwing some of that into high relief. One of the European countries who has been most opposed to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been Poland. Uh, They did not have uh, great experiences under the Soviet Union, not fans of Russia as it stands today. And they were one of the first European countries to say they were going to stop using Russian petroleum. They had set a deadline of January 1st for that uh, end of Russian usage. However, as we get close to flipping the calendar to the new year, even the, uh, the people of Poland have recognized that they don't have capacity, production capacity, to make up the shortfall. And as much as they are against that war in Russia, they have said they are going to continue buying Russian crude oil after the new year. When push comes to shove, folks choose to stay warm and they choose to stay fed. And I think that will be the ultimate pushback on these ESG investments. But farmers need to be vocal, need to see if it works. And if it doesn't, why aren't these programs working on your operation? And let's get that out there because the push for them isn't going away. Well, while we're talking Europe, uh, there's another interesting oil-related issue developing over in the EU. It might have a similar refrain in the United States. Last year, we saw oil producers globally reap record profits. They certainly put up with a lot in 2020, made some investments, scaled back, saw that incredible demand boom in 2022 saw that supply crunch caused by the Russia-Ukraine war and profits surged. Well, the European Union doesn't like to see profits surging as their consumers are hurting due to high energy prices. So the EU has proposed a windfall profits tax. Now, this is aimed at all large oil producers. Exxon Mobil, in fact, filed suit yesterday in European court, hopefully, to push back on this tax. That is their discussion. They describe the tax as counterproductive. They say it discourages investments and undermines investor confidence. Exxon spokesperson says that uh, the tax will cost the company just about $2 billion in 2023 if it does go into effect. And they note that they spent $3 billion here over the past five years, increasing production capacity in Europe. And Exxon Mobil did sort of end this with a little threat. They said future investments from the company will certainly take all tax taxes into account. We'll watch that battle play out. There was talk of a windfall profits tax here in the United States back earlier this fall. Most of that stopped during the midterm elections, and I have not seen too many Congress folks bring it back, although we'll see what happens when they return to Congress in 2023 when they do get back to congress of course they will still be digging out and understanding the details of that most recent omnibus funding bill there were lots of little pots of money in there for agriculture including some dollars to promote ag exports we spoke with ted mckinney yesterday head of nasa national association of state departments of agriculture they received some funds through the emerging market program which will help them get out and talk up u.s ag products in foreign markets the Foreign Egg Service also awarded another $202.7 million different million uh, to different programs, the Market Access Program, Foreign Market Development Program. All those groups will be receiving funds here in 2023, designed to get out there and help promote U.S. meat and grains on the international stage, including $5.15 million to USAPeak, the USA Poultry and Egg Export Council. We'll see that continue to develop. Another piece of news for our rice growing listeners down in the southern parts of the territory, USDA also received $250 million to make a one-time payment to rice producers who planted crops in 2022. Now, this is according to an Ag and Food Policy Center report, rising fertilizer prices led to a $62 per acre cost increase for rice farmers, and this payment is designed to help make that a little more tolerable. There was also a million dollars of research awarded to research. Excuse me, one million dollars in funding awarded to research aflatoxin. Uh, this has been a top priority of the National Corn Growers Association. We've certainly talked to their members about the dangers of aflatoxin before, and uh, it's been noted that this disease costs between 52 and 1.68 billion dollars annually in losses. So it'll be interesting to see this research move forward. Cotton producers also get a little bit of a bonus. Uh, Those of you folks who sustained financial hits due to supply chain issues are eligible for USDA payments. Uh, Those are going to come from a $100 million fund that was included in the spending bill. The Congress folks included this because of the plummeting textile demand during the pandemic. Folks, tune in to AOA tomorrow. We're going to talk what's changing the women, infant and children's program on the dairy side with Dr. Michael Dykes. And we'll get an update on what Minnesotans are hoping for as Farm Bureau members in 20. Tune in tomorrow to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
5: Don't sweat the small stuff.
1: Just nail the big stuff. Like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Learn more at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma.
3: don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life.
5: So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early.
1: My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes and I don't want to lose that.
5: Make a plan today to get
1: your eyes checked.
3: Visit brightfocus.org to learn more.